Good morning, church. If you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to Acts chapter 17, the passage I read earlier in the service. Acts chapter 17. In 2009, a group of leading scientists all across the world gathered in Chicago at a place called Fermilab, and they were searching for what has come to be known as the God particle. Have you ever heard that term, the God particle? Uh, are there any Big Bang Theory fans in the audience? I'm a big, big Bang Theory fan. Uh, the only thing I know about the God particle is that Sheldon calls it the Higgs boson particle. It's been Sheldon's life pursuit using the, the famous Hadron Collider in Europe to measure the God particle or the Higgs boson particle. All of these world-renowned scientists, they gather together in Chicago, and they're hoping to capture, measure. Now, before I begin today, I need to remind you that I don't really know a lot about this stuff all of this takes me back to eighth grade science class where we learned that everything consists of matter and matter consists of atoms and atoms have protons and electrons and neutrons. Remember all those mind-numbing charts of eighth grade science? Okay, I have read more and repetitively read more this past week in preparation for this message than I typically do because... I've been confronted with large scientific words and ideas that I don't necessarily understand, but I've had to then go define each one of them so I can then continue reading wherever I left off. It might take me 15, 20 minutes to read two pages sufficiently enough to feel like I've comprehended what the author's trying to communicate. So this group of world-renowned scientists in Chicago, they're hoping to be able to capture and measure this Higgs boson particle because there's something unique, there's something special about the God particle. You see, without the God particle, according to science, nothing that we know in the universe could exist. In fact, that's how we're going to define this. The God particle allows all other particles to exist. They believe it is a supercharged particle that attracts others, and without it, all the matter we know, everything we see, everything we can touch, everything we might experience on planet Earth would disintegrate into antimatter. So there's something very, very special, dare I say, almost supernatural about the Higgs boson particle or the God particle. Well, after the conference ended, one of the physicists came to the microphone to give her a report, and he said, using a question that my mother often asks me on the telephone, I'm sure you're all wondering, have we found God yet? And sadly, the answer was no. I believe, as sure as I'm standing here, that there are people in this room right here, right now, who have yet to truly find God. Further, there may be those in this church, certainly in our community, who aren't sure whether or not to believe that there's a God out there to be found. So what we've decided to do over the next six weeks is we're introducing a brand new series of messages entitled Fairy Tales. Because to many in our culture, my faith in God, his son Jesus Christ, and his word is nothing but a fairy tale. If you want to believe that, if it makes you feel better, go right ahead. But certainly don't try and proselyte your religion on me. 
The reason this is so important to me is because I fear that in the last hundred years, the church has gotten really lazy. We've sort of clutched our Bibles and we've run to our corner and we've said, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. All you scientists and astronomer people, you stay over there. And that troubles me greatly. There are millions of Americans right now, I am certain of this, sitting in a service just like this one, who believe there is no consistency between science and theology. Today, and the purpose of this series of messages is to show you how much consistency there actually is. In fact, I'm hoping that over the next six weeks, if you're a little skeptical to the idea of God or Jesus or the Bible, I hope you'll be at all six services. Uh, I hope you'll listen with an open mind because I'm going to try really hard not to talk like a preacher, okay? I don't want you to assume that everything I say is going to be rooted in some sort of make-believe Bible verse or religious platitude. If, on the other hand, you are a follower of Jesus Christ and have been one for some time, I hope to accomplish a couple of things. I want to remind you of what you believe. Further, I want to show you how much evidence there is for you to believe it. As I prayed earlier in the service, the idea behind the series Fairy Tales is to get believers to think and thinkers to believe. Albert Einstein said, Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. Now, skepticism is not a new development. Please don't fall under the impression that skepticism, doubt of Christianity, theology, God, and the Bible is somehow a 21st century phenomenon. That somehow skepticism like we know today regarding what we consider truth Never existed until just recently. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, as we read earlier in the service, he faced the same kind of skepticism, the same kind of uncertainty, the same kind of confusion as he walked through the city of Athens. Now, specifically, he was in what they call Mars Hill, the Mars Hill area of Athens. And he was struck by how many churches there were. Now, when I have friends of mine who I grew up in Florida, when they come up here and visit me and we drive around Bullock County, almost all of them will say, man, you people have a church on every corner because we do, right? In fact, 25 years ago, we almost didn't begin grace here because my research indicated that based upon our population in Bullock County, we have more churches per population than any other county in the state of Georgia. Did you know that? You people are hard to get along with, evidently. I don't know why that is so. Either we can't agree or we don't get along, but either way, there are a lot of churches. Well, the same was Paul's experience in Athens. He's walking along and there's a temple and out front there's an idol and this idol is made of gold and it's to some God. Then he goes down a little further. There's another temple and another idol and another temple and another idol and another temple. It's just one after another after another. And in the midst of that search, he came across one of those temples with an a vacant altar. In other words, there was nothing there. And there was an inscription which read, to an unknown God. Now, in my opinion, that moment in history illustrates humanity's ongoing quest to answer the question, does God exist? 
In fact, that's where we'll begin. Let me ask you, does God exist? Maybe more important than how you answer that question is why do you answer it the way you answer it? You see, there's a difference. A lot of people can answer the question, does God exist? But what I want you to consider is why do you answer it that way? Let's begin there. Does God exist? In short, there are only three responses to that question. I hope you realize this. The atheists would say, number one, no, absolutely not. God is a figment of your imagination. You have constructed, you've manufactured the idea of God to get you through your darkest hours. And some of you right now, as was the case in the earlier service, are in the darkest time of your life. And you're wondering, is God real? Can I know him? Does he know me? Can he help me? The atheists would say no. You've merely constructed an idea, manufactured an idea of God to make yourself more comfortable or your life more convenient. That's what Paul realized when he got to Athens. We read a moment ago in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. That's what an atheist would say to you or me when we say, I believe in God. He say, you've designed your God. The second answer to that question comes from an agnostic, and that answer is maybe. Eh, maybe. Does God exist? The atheist says no. The agnostic says maybe. You can't really know after all. There is no proof one way or the other. Even if he does or she does or it does exist, we cannot know it. So what's the point of having the discussion? Paul ran into the same type of people in Athens. They were Epicureans and they were Stoics. We read a moment ago in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? You see, both the Epicurean philosophy and the Stoic philosophy believe that if there is a god or goddess or, or gods out there somewhere, there's no possible way we could ever know them. And they are not particularly concerned with humanity. This, incidentally, was the train of thought throughout all the ancient civilizations. This is what the Egyptians believed during the time of Moses and Pharaoh. This is what the Greeks, this is what the Persians, this is what the Babylonians believed. That God was out there somewhere, but there's no possible way to know him. He's not concerned with us. The best we can do is do our best to honor him and not upset him. That was their philosophy. So the agnostic says, no, God does not exist. Or excuse me, the atheist says, no. The agnostic says, maybe, maybe not. But then the advocate, number three, says, yes, emphatically, God exists. And what I want you to know, church, is there is more evidence, not theological evidence, but scientific evidence to the existence of God than many in the church would realize. In verse 17, the Bible says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. You know, something I fear about our modern church is we've lost our ability to reason, We've lost our ability to sit down with someone who doesn't see it the way we see it and talk it through. 
to be honest and transparent and direct with someone, even though we know they disagree. Such division in our culture. We, again, run to our, our corner and we clutch our Bibles and we say, you scientists, you stay over there. We don't like what you have to say because it threatens what we believe about our precious book. It need not be that way. It need not be that way at all. Paul reasoned in the synagogue. He had dialogue. He had conversations with people who saw it differently. In Paul's mind, God absolutely existed, and he had invaded our human existence in order to redeem fallen man through Jesus Christ. Now, there are only three ways to answer the question, does God exist? But the consequences as to how we answer that question are almost limitless. Think about it. How you answer the question, does God exist, impacts all kinds of other important areas of your life and existence. Francis Schaeffer once said, ideas have consequences. There is perhaps no greater idea, no greater concept to debate than whether or not God exists. So the idea of God and therefore the idea of no God have consequences on our daily living. I've listed just a few. How about the idea of morality? Morality. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? Well, how you answer the question, does God exist, determines how you know what's right and what's wrong. Verse 30. Paul said, in the past, God overlooked our ignorance, but now he, note the next word, commands all people everywhere to repent. If you don't believe that God exists, then who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? Do I get to decide for you? Do I have to stand by while you decide for me? Paul said, God commands. God gave us rules to live by, statutes to govern our behavior. Because in Paul's mind, if God exists, if God is real, then it's his statute that matters. Oh, but there are so many more. What about number two, eternity? Is there life after death? How you answer the question, does God exist, determines what you believe regarding the afterlife. Verse 31, the first part of verse 31. For he, God, has appointed a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, Jesus, that he's appointed. Paul says that if God exists, then I'm accountable to him. Surely, surely, you are not so presumptuous as to think that God can exist and somehow he's accountable to you? No. If God exists, surely we are accountable to him. If God doesn't exist, then to whom or to what am I accountable? Those are good questions. What do you do with the afterlife? Look, in my opinion, this is the most common reason why someone decides to reject all the evidence in favor of God's existence 
and go with the agnostic mindset of, well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. What difference does it make? You see, if God doesn't exist, then there is no assault, no impact on my personal sense of sovereignty. I'm the king. I'm the king of me. The only thing in my world that matters is what I determine matters. I'm not accountable to anyone if God doesn't exist. But what if he does? And what if you are? And what if I am? Don't stop there. How about number three, religion? How you answer the question, is God real? Does he exist? Helps you decide which religion you believe is right. In verse 16, Luke writes, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. You see, at that particular time, the Romans had a God for everything. They had many, many, many gods. They were trying to cover all their bases, even to the point of having a vacant altar and an inscription to an unknown God. We want to make sure we cover them all, right? I think today, even in our modern culture, we worship many, many idols. A lot more subtle. I mean, we don't fashion them out of gold or bronze. We don't bow down to them in public. But watch the way people live. We worship many idols because we serve them. We sacrifice for them. We give to them. We love them. I marvel, I marvel at some of the things people are willing to believe today. Parallel universes. Turns out there may be multiple my cults, from what I read. Living in alternate universes. Time travel. The dream sleep. I marvel at what some men and women are willing to believe today. But listen, church, at some point, we must ask about the validity of our objects of worship. At some point, why don't you hold your beliefs to the same scrutiny that Christianity has been held to now for 20 centuries? You see, whenever I talk with someone who calls themselves an agnostic, or they just don't really want to buy into the church and God and Jesus, as the word defines him. I always ask, well, what do you believe in? And then the question that always, almost always ends the discussion is, well, why do you believe it? You see, if I, as a minister, am, am expected to know this book to the point that I can quote chapter and verse to defend my faith in Christianity, why don't they have to do the same thing? If you don't believe God exists, hey, why don't you convince me? Why don't you prove that to me? You see, there are consequences to ideas. Here's another. How about purpose? What is your purpose? Why are you here? Why are you here? You see, depending on how you answer the question, does God exist? That has great influence, great impact on your sense of being and purpose. Paul knew who he was. Paul knew his purpose. You notice the end of verse 18. Luke writes, 
Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul is enthusiastic about his position in Christ. Why do I exist? Well, if I believe there is a God, then I am an individual created with dignity in the image of that God. And in that reality, I find my purpose. But if I do not believe in God, then I'm just the accidental outcome of chemicals and biology. Wait, there's more. How about truth? Does absolute truth exist in our world? You might be surprised to know that better than 60% of young people do not believe in absolute truth. I always find that humorous when you talk to somebody and they say, hey, don't start quoting verses to me, man. Absolute truth doesn't exist. Well, you've just stated an absolute, right? Are you awake, church? Hey, Pastor Mike, if there's one thing that's absolute in this universe, it's that absolutes don't exist. Well, you've just stated an absolute. I'll have a lot more to say on absolute truth in a message next time. But ideas do have consequences. What we say we believe about God has ramifications, implications, a ripple effect, and the absence of any idea of God has serious consequences. I mean, look around. Look around. In a world that's riddled with oppression, hatred for our fellow man, racism, corruption, it's not too difficult to recognize that without an idea of God, it's easy for man to lose his way. But someone might ask, well, wait a minute. Do you have any proof that God actually exists? I am so glad you asked that question. Because there's a lot more than you might realize. Do you have any proof that God actually exists? Now, I'm not interested in what those scientists have to say. I want to know what the theologians and the preachers have to say. That's not the way to look at it. You would be shocked to know how many of the brightest, most educated, most awarded, most noted scientific minds of our day believe in a personal God who can be known. Let me just tell you about a few. There's a man by the name of Francis Collins who's a leader in his field. He writes, and I quote, I am a scientist and a believer, and I find no conflict between the worldviews. And neither do apparently 40% of the working scientists who also claim to be believers in a personal God. Isn't that interesting? Well, I thought all scientists denied the Bible and all theologians denied scientists. You're an idiot. There are more educated bright minds of our day who study astronomy, physics, mathematics, biology, chemistry, that point to their study as evidence of a creator than you might realize. Here's another man by the name of Joel Premack. In the last few years, astronomy has come together so that we're now able to tell a coherent story of how the universe began. Exciting times in science because we're beginning to see how God did it. This story does not contradict God, but instead enlarges the idea 
of God. You know what saddens me? Some in our churches all around the culture, all around the country, even today, their idea of the Genesis account of creation is a little blue flannel graph. There's God with a long white beard. Poof, there's the sunshine. Poof, there's the world. Poof, you know what a flannel graph is, right? Remember those from Sunday school? Science is beginning to uncover the fingerprints of God in the very fabric of our universe. And still, many in the church run to their corner. La, 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 la. Everybody's heard of Albert Einstein. Einstein said, my religion consists of a humble admiration of the illimitable superior spirit who reveals himself in the slight details that we're able to perceive with our frail and feeble minds. Is there a case for God? You better believe there is a strong case for God. In fact, if you came to me and said, why do you believe? Without even using this book, I can point you to five reasons that I believe God exists. Here's reason number one. Consider the concept of God. The concept of God. Are you aware that transcending time, ethnicity, transcending geographic location all around the, the world for time past eternity, so far as we know, man has had a concept of God. Man has wanted to believe in a God. Man has wanted to figure out how we got here, why we're here. Can we know our creator? You see, God didn't line up early man and say, do you believe in me? You better get religious now. No. In fact, the way Paul describes it is this. Verse 22, I read it a moment ago. Paul stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. Again, why did they have so many objects of worship? Because God appeared to them in their living room and said, Hey, go build me a bronze statue? No, because there was a natural inclination inside each of them to find, to reach out to a personal God. The Romans had many gods, many, many, many gods, a God for everything. Ask yourself if you're skeptical as to whether or not God exists. Why do the vast number and majority of cultures around the world throughout history past have a concept of God and morality? How do we account for that inherent knowledge of God? Look what Paul says in verse 27. God did that so that men would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. You see, there is a natural hunger inside mankind for God. I didn't say that. I'm not using the Bible to say that. I'm telling you, history proves that fact. Well, where did that hunger originate? The Bible says God put it there. That's pretty easy for me to believe. To deny the existence of God means to believe that in a system of cutthroat natural selection and survival of the fittest, somehow man evolved into a theistic being. That's preposterous to me. Consider this. How about the origin of matter? Matter. Matter matters. Did you know that? Where did it all come from? The origin of matter. Here's the way Paul put it in verse 22. The God who made the world in, in 
Paul's mind, God was the antecedent to everything that is. He made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. If there is one absolute scientific reality and truth, it is that everything comes from something. The great theologian Charles Ryrie, I've got a study Bible in my office, he wrote, if something now exists like the cosmos, then it either came from nothing or it came from something that preexisted. Now stop and think about this for a minute. I'm telling you why I believe God exists, and I point to everything there is. Every matter that exists, it had to come from something, did it not? Let me throw a a graph up or a chart up on the board. Here's how simple this is, and yet it is profound in implication. There are causes and there are effects. Option one, either the cause was nothing and the effect was the world and the universe as we know it. Or option two, the cause was something and the effect was the universe and the world. Now look at it, church. Which one of those takes more faith to embrace? Let's be honest. Either there was nothing and then, surprise, there's something, Or there was something that preceded it, and now there's the world. There are only two options. Everything has an antecedent in our universe. We can accept that. Well, why can't the antecedent to the universe be God? Look, here's perhaps my favorite. Number three is the evidence of design. Do you have any idea how complicated the world is? I could line people up here from the campus of Georgia Southern and one after another, they could start describing for you in their intellectual prowess, the complexities of not only our universe, but of our environment to the point we'd be here all afternoon and you'd be, you'd be tired of hearing it after an hour, right? But we could overwhelm you with scientific evidence of the complexity of our world. Well, if you deny the existence of God, how about all the evidence of design? Again, verse 24, Paul put it this way. It was God who made the world and everything in it. Listen to Paul Davey, who's a contributor on black hole research and the Big Bang Theory. He writes, there is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. I didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. One of the leading scientific minds of our day said that. Ours is a universe. Ours is a world that is full of complexity. And within that complexity, we find incredible order. Let me illustrate. This is a simple box of wooden toothpicks. All right, I got it out of the church kitchen. All right, you've probably got some of these at home. Simple wooden toothpick. You can imagine in this box, they are, they're orderly. They're, they're all lying the same direction. Now, from that order, what, what happens when I take this firecracker and I put it in that box of toothpicks. What happens when the firecracker goes off? 
what happens when the firecracker explodes and the toothpicks begin? It's not a real firecracker. (laughs) Raise your hand if you peed a little. (laughs) What are the chances that following an explosion like that, that those toothpicks would have flown into the air and made a toothpick bridge? or flown into the air and made a toothpick log cabin. What are the chances? That's what you have to believe when you deny the existence of God and yet measure the order and complexity of our world. Here, one last thing, number four. How about the uniqueness of you and me? The uniqueness of human beings. Paul said this in his testimony about God as creator, verse 28. In him, in Jesus Christ, we live, we move, we have our very being. That's like saying, we're not like the animals. You have intellect. You have a sense of morality and fair play. A lion doesn't care if he has to kill you to take what doesn't belong to him, but you do, right? An animal doesn't care if you must suffer that they may survive, but we care, don't we? There is something unique about you as a human being. The Bible says it's because you, unlike the lion or the hyena or the orangutan, are created in the image of God. You know, I get a little tired of what I hear quite often. Someone will say, you realize... 96% of your DNA is duplicated in that chimpanzee. What I want to know is how important are the other 4%? That's what I want to know. You are incredibly intricate. If you don't believe how complex an organism God created you to be, wait till you get old and you get a little sick and you go to a doctor, then you take this medicine, then you get that test, and then you go that and you read this book and you go to that specialist and they run this scan and nobody can solve your problem. You know why? Because you are complex. You are incredibly intricate. You are unique. Consider our intellect for a minute. I mean, if I am supposed to be the most evolved species on the planet, why don't I have echolocation like a dolphin? A dolphin using sound waves can find things in the dark. Last night at 4.15 in the morning, I got up and hit a chair with that pinky toe right there because I don't have echolocation. To me, it's just preposterous. It's presumptuous to assume that I'm the most highly evolved creature on the planet, but I can't do that. How can I ignore the majesty and the wonder of God's creation and the uniqueness of humanity? One last thing and I'll quit. I got to get religious at the very end. After all, I am a minister. How about the resurrection of Christ? If you don't believe in God, what do you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, I don't believe it. Well, what if I told you it's an accepted historical fact? Do you understand that there are extra biblical resources out there, first century historians 
who were not necessarily followers of Jesus Christ, who recorded the God-man named Jesus, who was dead on Friday and alive on Sunday, and the incredible revolution that followed. I've told you this before, and we'll talk about it again in a future message. Do you understand, as we huddle in the corner and clutch the B-I-B-L-E, that the church didn't have this book for 300 years following the resurrection of Jesus? You see, the whole early church revolution that changed the face of humanity at that time didn't begin with this. The only reason we have this is because of the resurrection. Look, don't you think that for 2,000 years now, skeptics of Christianity and haters, haters of God have been working double time and overtime to try to find that body? Because Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do you do with the resurrection? Look, in 1927, there was a Belgian astronomer named George Lemaitre. He began to study the universe. He proposed a theory that the universe had a finite beginning. There was a starting point to the universe. Now, this was pretty new. Because before then, especially those ancient civilizations I talked about a moment ago, everyone just assumed that the universe always was. But this Belgian astronomer was able to measure the sky, and he put forth the hypothesis that there was a clear beginning point. There was a starting point. Along come a guy named Hubble. We've named our Hubble telescope after him. He double-checked this man's work and came to the same conclusion as did many, many, many other world-renowned scientific minds around the globe. They all said the universe had a beginning. That beginning came to be called the Big Bang, right? Now, let me ask you a question. When I use the term Big Bang, do you more closely associate that term, that idea, with evolution and atheism or creationism and scripture? Which is it? When I use the term Big Bang, when you see the term Big Bang in print or on the television, when you consider the Big Bang, whether or not it occurred, what it must have looked like, do you associate that with evolution and atheism or creationism and scripture. I think most people associate it with the former. Yeah, yeah, the Big Bang means there is no God. God didn't create anything. There was an atomic explosion in the universe, and everything came from that. Billions of years of evolution. Well, what if I told you that that same 1927 Belgium astronomer was also a Catholic priest? And when George Lemaitre found the starting point of the universe and believed he could measure it. He and all of his contemporaries thought they had proven the existence of God and the Genesis account of creation. You see, whether you call it the Big Bang or in the beginning, God, it's one and the same. So, if you deny the existence of that God? Or you're one of those agnostics who says, eh, maybe I can take or leave God. I got to leave you with one very important question. 
Do you not want to believe in God? Is that the real problem here? Do you not want to believe in God? And if you don't, why not? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that we can observe and all that we can measure around us. Thank you for your goodness, as Einstein put it, to to leave these little clues behind. That in our feebleness and frailty of mind, we can stumble across and find you. God, I pray for those in this auditorium, those in the first service, those that are a part of this church, those watching online who are still searching for you. Father, Father, open their eyes that they might see. I pray these things because of my faith in your risen son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.